This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale, Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Mohammed Yadagari of Gilderland. He has written a book, Always an Immigrant, a Cultural Memoir, that describes his life in three parts. As a child growing up in an Iranian family in Iraq, as a young man learning about life on his own in Tehran, and as a newcomer to America, where he studies in Albany, marries, and becomes a teacher. He spent a decade writing the book, crystallizing a lifetime of experiences into compelling stories, which reveal some hard truths. I'm just going to start by reading the last two sentences of his book because they seem to me to embody what the experience of the reading this book was like for me. So this is what he wrote. We are what we observe, learn, and experience in our momentary journey on earth. The degree that separates us from one another is the way we come to regard our perceptions as facts. I just find that so profound. And I'm in the business of trying to ferret out facts. <laughs> and it's often, it's often very hard to separate them from perceptions. So I'd just like to hear, to start with, what it is that made you decide to write this book. Well, um, I really think that every individual's life is interesting enough to write about it. And, of course, if it is related in the right way, it, is, it would be very interesting. Um, I know a woman who, after reading my book, she even decided to write. She said she is interested in writing her own book, memoir. Um my experiences have been very varied. And since I have been to so many countries, I always related those experiences to whoever was interested in listening about, hearing about. Um, I also found people uh, became really interested and they encouraged me to write them down. Actually, in the introduction of my book, I say that it was my college students who encouraged me to write the, my memoir and my stories. Yes, and you taught at both Union and also at the University of Albany. Um, and I just... The way you teach and you talk about teaching, just tell us a little about your teaching philosophy because you describe it as an art and you talk about the different components of it that are so important. So maybe you could just tell us a little about your philosophy as a teacher. Well, my philosophy of teaching really is that, for one thing, I see, I, as I have uh, expressed in the book, um, Teaching indeed is an art, but it really is what makes a good teacher is not how much he knows or she knows, is how he relates that topic to the students in a manner that they would learn 
what has been taught them. Um, so, and also teachers, especially in high school, college is a little bit different. In high school, teachers really should respect kids. Many proud teachers who have problems, they have problems because they cause those problems. They come to school um, and they start picking on kids when the kids sometimes they don't behave or teachers get excited, more excited than necessary. So go ahead. No, no, I was listening. That's I think that's, that's certainly true. Um, I, I didn't interrupt you. Keep, keep going. <laughs> well, I was just giving you my uh, idea of what uh, teaching is very important in terms of uh, good teaching, that is. One has to keep up with the material as well as the conditions that the kids are in. The kids come to school. Some of them really haven't had breakfast. And, uh, and they have a lot of problems at home. So the teacher must pay attention to those things. And also the teacher should be able, should be able to change his uh, style of teaching and at moments notice. Well, you write quite a bit about the influence various teachers have had on you from the very youngest age when you went to an Iranian school in Iraq through your time in living in Iran yourself and then coming here to the United States and ending up at SUNY, as it was called then, the State University of New York at Albany. And um, it just seems like your different experiences with education may well have shaped how you ended up being a teacher. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, uh, yes, as I have explained, I, I really went to, when I, in, in elementary school, as I described in the book, there were Iranian and Iraqi governments. They had reciprocal agreements to establish schools in the, in the host country. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the curriculum of the host country was supposed to be, was required to be taught. And... Um, where I really went under, I underwent two systems of education, which was one was British style of education, the other one was French style of education. And uh, my teachers really had a lot of influence. I mean, I remember that my English teacher in my fifth grade had uh, quite a bit of influence on us in terms of teaching us what we really. Uh, thought of the future, of future plans, our future plans, and what to do, and how to think about those things. Yes, he was the one and, that asked you about what you wanted to be, and you, you bravely came forward instead of your classmates who wanted to be doctors or lawyers. You um, told them that you wanted to be a writer and you wanted to change the world, which for a 
a small boy to have those ambitions um, seemed quite grand, I thought, um, to understand the truth and be a writer. Do you feel that doing your memoir has, has fulfilled that goal in some ways? Well, I don't really know. It is a difficult question in that case. Um, I just hope that I, it would have some effect on people who read the material and uh, would probably in some way would change their attitude uh, for the better. And... Um, Wow. Well, the title of the book interested me, Always an Immigrant. Can you just describe how you came up with that for your title? Yes. At first, we had, I had a very difficult time deciding on the title. And it took me, I, I must say that I started uh, writing from 2008. It really took me 10 years to write the book with some periods of uh, rest in between. Um, at first, since the book covered three parts in th th the story of my life in three cities, I decided to uh, call it a tale of three cities. But anytime I mentioned it to people, the name of the book, I either got uh, uh, face their silence, or they told me might it would be good to change the title. Because and it was really last year when I decided that I have been um, an immigrant. You see, at first I was an immigrant in Iraq, and then after uh, when I was 18, I went to Iran, and over there, at first I had a heavy accent. And I was considered to be an Arab. Then uh, a few years afterward, I came to the United States, and I've been here for so many years, and I have been an immigrant here too. So, and even today, when you talk to someone, one of the first questions they ask you is, where you, did you come from? Where did you, what country you, you came from? And uh, so always an immigrant has always been my really, uh, I have been an immigrant all the time in my life. So it suddenly hit me, why not call it always an immigrant? That was the reason I chose the title, always an immigrant. I think it's a good one. So I think my favorite part of the book is the very first part, as you described, you, you have divided it into thirds, and each third has its own set of themes that are very riveting. But what I loved best is the way you formed your narrative when you were a child. You wrote in a very childlike way. Um, you wrote very simply, um, we think of it these days as Hemingway-style writing, you know, very simple words. But you're looking at the world through the eyes of a child as if you're taking the reader along to experience what that was like at that time in your life. And I just wondered if you could talk a little about how you came to write the narrative that way. Well... As, I, as you can see from the beginning of the book, 
I, I, this, actually, I started thinking, the truth of the matter is, I started in the woke up in the morning around 2 o'clock, and in the, of course, I had planned to write. So I started with the story of my sister who drowned one day. And uh, so I started writing about that. And uh, I gave it to my wife, Priscilla, and I asked her to read it. And she said that was pretty good. Then I said to myself, the best thing to do is to really narrate all the stories in order and uh, keep going. And that's what I did. Uh, and each one seems to have, they could each work as a separate short story. You know, they, yes. um, they work as an ongoing narrative in the story of your life, the journey, as you call it. But they also work individually. And um, one of the things that struck me, you have uh, this childlike enthusiasm um, because you're going to go on a train ride and you're excited. And then you get on this train and you know something was wrong. You wrote, something was wrong. I could not tell what. The train reeked of misery and despair. And with those very simple words, it just changes the whole tone. But then you layer in what you later figured out, because of course you were a child and, and at the time and didn't know that they were Jews who were being deported. And it, it's just so powerful the way in each of those stories, like the one that you just described with your sister having drowned, um, you give a context that Westerners like myself didn't know, you know, that houses are built around a courtyard that usually have a pool. And um, all along through this book, you learn facts about another way of life just as part of your storytelling. But here your mother had been to a dressmaker and apparently turned her back for an instant when your little sister found the pool of water, and just the way you describe, um, you know, seeing her lifeless body, and then you layer in how once you become a father yourself, you truly now understand what your mother must have been feeling. It just seems like the layers in each of those stories, did you write them all in one piece, like you said, or did you like come back and add in these, these layers of context? Well, over time, in the course of 10 years, is as I said, I started 2008. We fi I finished 2018. And uh, I had period of hibernation in between. And uh, I wrote uh, one story after another. In the middle of the night, my wife is here helping oh, me. Yes. Well, that's I, you mentioned you had insomnia in some part of the book. So yes, yes, yes. Um, the the scene uh, you were talking about the train, the story on the train. The scene on the train really has always been etched in my memory. Um, I think that children have very strong power of observation and when they see sad scenes it touches them and always stays with them mm -hmm. uh, 
the the sad faces that you mentioned in the train really were touching and my mother's denouncement of the Iraqi government made me worry and uh, wonder what the, about the reasons mm-hmm. then i heard my father saying the prophetic words or prediction that yes our turn will come which of course as you uh, notice in the story uh, it really left quite an impression on me and uh, let's face it the that experience was uh, uh, alarming that has all changed our, our lives. I mean, when I say by our, our family lives mm-hmm. and my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, since I heard your wife chiming in in the background, I think we should talk about her, Priscilla. Um, there is the, a most stunning scene in the book. I think it's something every woman would love to read about herself. It's the moment you first laid eyes on Priscilla. And um, just looking for the part in the book, you say, um, I only felt things. I looked at her blue eyes that appeared to move up and down and sideways, staring at the walls, the ceiling, and the floor as if flirting with inanimate objects, but not with the people in the hall. I leaned against the wall with my left shoulder, inspecting her thin, innocent face and crimson lips. I felt a sense of certainty that this woman would be my wife. I just find that so beautiful and so powerful. So it was not an easy journey to your marriage. I um, appreciated you put in the context there. The Supreme Court had not handed down its decision in Loving versus Virginia, where, of course, an interracial marriage was being um, challenged. And you and your wife just seemed so courageous, uh, despite her parents uh, trying to stop the union. Just tell us a, a little about that. Well, I tell you, I, I really think that it was more an act of courage on my wife's part. Priscilla was on a hot seat, as so to speak. She, they, her parents did not approve of it. And uh, everyone else, really, that talked to us objected to the marriage. And uh, everyone tried to change her mind. So really, when, when it comes to the courage part, she was more <laughs> courageous than me. Um, I remember a first Presbyterian minister who had gone to Iran as a missionary. And he thought, of course, her her father took us there to talk to him. And uh, he thought that I was going to marry her to stay in this country. I had no intention of staying in the United States at that time. Uh, We did go through a lot of really difficult times in in that sense. And uh, her Priscilla's parents wrote to everyone in the school, the university, from the president down to my student advisor. And um, we were even, we talked to the dean of student affairs for a whole hour trying to change our minds. 
but we weren't ready to do that. No, and the uh, university wouldn't extend your visa. I mean, it just seemed impossible. And that is that was the reason we eloped. <laughs> we uh, we just uh, I knew that if we were to wait, I would have to be leaving the country. So a lot of times I look back. And I think, really, sometimes I wonder if destiny had any play in, in this aspect. And I don't mean this particular marriage, although this was one aspect of it, but in many other cases. I mean, you know the story that I wrote about what I call, quote-unquote, guardian angel in Tehran who uh, showed me how to get out of the country. Yes, that was so clever with discarding, yeah. or hiding your passport and getting another one. That was very clever. Right, yeah. yes. I mean, I went through uh, a lot of difficulty to get out of the country. To get an exit visa mm-hmm. was not easy. And uh, you had to pay bribes here and there. You have to, and many other things. And of course, then all of a sudden, when I there was no hope whatsoever, I see this this fellow coming and asking me a few questions, and all of a sudden telling me how to get out of the country. So it is very very. Uh, when you look back, you just wonder. Yeah, your whole life would have been different. You just ran into him at a water fountain, right? <laughs> and there, there he was giving right. you advice. Yeah. Well, I loved uh, the way all through the book you kind of held out America as this place you had read, I guess, about Jefferson and some of the founding fathers when you were a schoolboy. You mentioned not the founding mothers, <laughs> but the founding fathers. And you had this teacher who was talking about the rise and fall of uh, different empires and said that America did not build an empire, but brought many people together and melded into a nation. And I just wonder, especially after you got your teaching job at Ravina Queen and Selkirk, and were really, in my estimation i got furious reading that part of the book i felt like tearing out the pages the you know the little click of teachers who were so bigoted and so um horrible um but especially now too with the racial turmoil that we're in the midst of do you feel that america has or will live up to that promise that you had held out as you sought coming here in the first place I hope it does, but I'm never, I'm, you know, the truth of the matter is, I tell you deep down, I'm very uh, sad for what's going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is, sometimes I think when I really uh, see the news and the television and so on, I cannot understand how someone would think that he is or she is better than another person because of the color of his skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something that I cannot, it, it's just unbelievable to me. And uh, see, I was, when, what, I was uh, what I was taught was people are different. The, only, the difference between people is based on the degree of their knowledge. 
not because of this uh, color of their skin or this. I mean, if I, I think it's a most ludicrous uh, uh, idea for someone to assume he is better than someone else because he's white mm -hmm. or even another color. So I would say there in, in my introduction, I do mention that there is hope because there are a lot of enlightened people also in this country. And I want to also make another comment, and that what I am saying about um, in this particular case about people's prejudices, you can find that everywhere in the world. Let's make no mess. Let's uh, say that to begin with. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you go, there are prejudiced people who hate the other. And uh, and you you can find this. Let me say the Arabs, for example, put Iranians down. The Iranians put the Arabs down, so on and so forth. However, we're talking about America. We live in America, and so we should not have that expectation. Uh, we should not expect. I mean, this kind of a uh, mentality that we see. Uh, happening and it, it's just beyond uh, my belief to be honest with you i cannot believe what's happening mm -hmm. well i wonder if you could speak a little about where you got those values which are values i i think are important um you write about your mother and just her steadfastness and her love and belief in you and she carries you through boyhood difficulties, like learning how to read, even though she herself cannot read, with this ancient poem that she must have memorized and has you go through word by word, and with your lisping, where you had that teacher that made fun of you in front of the class because you were lisping, and she seeks out a cure that miraculously works by making this special soup. And then also your father, even though you describe him as a philanderer with a quick temper, and you describe something I had never heard of before, a temporary marriage, you still recognize his good qualities and generosity and pride in his family. And if you could just talk a little about how, how parents shape a child and, and how that played out in your own life. Yeah, um, I have seen many people putting young people down. Uh, I even uh, touched on this subject in the chapter relating to my teaching at RCS. Mm -hmm. um, I don't understand why adults think that children cannot think or feel or reason. Uh, what I tried to do was to describe my childhood as one that really was a respectful one. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that comes through. I, I hope it comes through. It's respectful environment. They respected me when I questioned them. They answered me when I doubted the reasoning. Yes, you uh, my say... My mother was always there. You I'm say, sorry, go ahead. You say they didn't call you a big mouth, rather they called you a philosopher <laughs> because you were a little <laughs> boy with lots of questions, yeah. That I, is true, that is true. And uh, I think that that was the one aspect of my upbringing, that my mother always was there and ready to be a mentor 
And as you say, I mean, she really couldn't read and write, and that was one of her um, greatest regret in life. And uh, my father, he was always busy, but he loved me in his own way. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think that was one reason that um, really affected my upbringing. Yes, and the, it made just indelible impression on you that you were able all these years later to tell so vividly. One of the things that I thought was the saddest scene in the book was when your father came to the United States and visited you because he was having problems with his heart and you went to a cardiologist in New York City and you, the doctor told you not to tell your father about the diagnosis which was he would not live more than another few years. And you're driving back in the car and having a talk with your father where you're equals, you're friends. It's no longer father and son. And it feels just, it just feels nice reading that. But then your father is telling you when the lights are turning green so you can go and he's touching you on the thigh. And you tell him that men in the United States don't touch. And then when you're discussing it that night with your wife, you just, you cry, and you say you hadn't cried, you know, and the whole time you'd been a man in the United States, and you wrote this gentle human part of me had died. And that just made me feel so sad, this idea of assimilating into a new culture meant giving up a part of yourself, and also, too, in the chapter on the Ravina Queeman Selkirk teachers being so cruel, and you had always thought of humility as a virtue, and you had to kind of change your personality to to combat those things. So just if you could talk a little about the hard, yes, the yes. hard parts. This, this chapter is very interesting. Actually, I wrote that chapter uh, wondering if I should actually write it, mm. <laughs> because... Uh, there are uh, uh, there are subjects there that I am discussing that many others probably wouldn't feel like discussing. So, but talking about assimilation, one has to keep in mind that when a person goes to another country with a different culture, he or she is learning as uh, is, is not a child. Is uh, not learning like a child who grows up uh, in that society and learns step by step. If you go to another country as a 20-year-old, you have you already have lost decades uh, of learning, and um, one has to recognize that. And like, for example, as we were talking about the racial tensions, when I came, I had no idea what was going on. It took me many years to understand what is going on in terms of race relations mm -hmm. and uh, as as for uh, like for example the behavior of men toward each other uh, touching each other in terms of hugging at that time nowadays we I see people men hugging each other sometimes as friends but then it was not even, when I say then, I mean that a century ago, I'm talking about in the 60s and 70s, they didn't hug and didn't kiss cheeks. Um, I, humility was, is considered a sign of 
weakness, although humility, you usually read uh, about it in books, and it is ex uh, uh, virtue. a, a virtue. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... Um, Well, I feel there are a lot. By the way, by the way, you mentioned the horrible. You said something about horrible at the teaching us. Yes, I must tell you, there were also there were a lot of good people there. I mean, at RCS. Yes, that, I, I, that <laughs> seems to be part. It seems to be part of your personality, at least as you portray it in the book. That even when many of us would react to the cruelty. Uh, differently, you always seem to have this sense of buoyancy, resiliency, like good, good feelings that outweigh the bad. I don't know where that comes from, but it seems that that's part of your personality, just to sort of look on the bright side and keep keep going forward. And um, I mean, to have earned your PhD and then have people mock being called a doctor or to have it, it just you somehow seem to rise above these nastinesses and yeah. um but you know, let me tell you something i know a lot of teachers friends of mine from different country from who taught in different other districts mm -hmm. and to be honest with you this is a, the culture <laughs> mm. you know what i mean I don't want to say this was only RCS. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's the culture of this country mm -hmm. uh, that I mean. I, you follow me? <laughs> I do, and it, it it saddens me to think that that is the culture of this country, where people group together uh, in like-minded clusters and. Uh, make make fun of outsiders. Um, I, I think reading your book would be a good antidote to that. Um, mm. So our time has gone so fast. There were so many more things I wanted to ask you, but really, do you have any closing thoughts or ideas or things you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, well, uh, yeah, okay. You don't have time for. Oh, my wife wanted me to read something, but I. Yes, we do have. We do have time. I would love to hear it. Tell me what it is she wants you to read. Well, uh, okay. There is a passage in the book. The reason I'm reading it is because of the poignancy of uh, the passage. You see, as I, as I told you before, that um, when I wrote this book, I, you know, sometimes you don't think about your own life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Generally speaking. You don't just don't think about it. You live it, you go by, and don't think about it. But when I when you write it, it becomes a document. Mm -hmm. So you think... What happened? How? And you have heard this from, when I say you, I mean people have heard it from, uh, everybody talks about it. How did this happen? I don't know. So in this case, the reason I would read this is that it has to do with my mother. When I said goodbye to my mother 
and she would not come forward to hug me and to say goodbye. Oh. So I, I will yes. peace for you if it's I, I know that okay? passage. Yes, that's very, very sad. But yes, read that passage. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I had no idea that Albany, New York would become my final home. I had promised my mother that I would be back. When I said my final goodbye to the family in July 1963, leaving the city of Karbala, Iraq, to go to Europe with the intention of continuing my education in the United States, I noticed that my mother stood apart, leaning against the living room wall, just looking. There was no smile, there was no tears, no advice, nothing, no expression on her face. With both hands folded against her abdomen, she just kept looking at me. Our eyes met and I was puzzled. Why was she looking at me with no expression whatsoever? She did not move forward to hug me. She did not even show my any sadness. It shook me. Mother, I said, please tell me what is wrong. She replied slowly, each word a separate entity, emotion quietly rising from the depth of her being. I am not going to see you again. The sentence was simple, but pierced my heart. Yes, you will. I said, laughing. It was unbelievable to me that I would never go back. She repeated the sentence again. I'll never see you again. I extended my arms to touch her, to hug her, and continued to refuse to believe her, to believe her. She did not move. Her head bent slightly to one side, and her eyes still focused on me. She did not come forward to hug me and kiss me. She looked as if she were storing that short memory of my face in her long-term memory. I was a bit taken aback. I laughed again and I said, you'll see, I am going to prove you wrong. Mother, mothers know best. She knew it, but I did not even give it a thought. She was right. I chose to stay in America and never saw her again.